This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Hey, Story fans. Second Story has been telling stories in Chicago for over 15 years, and you'd think that means we'd heard it all. But more often than not, a story like this next one comes along and blows us out of the water, proving that there is literally no end to the flow of powerful personal narratives this city provides. We felt this again last March when first-time storyteller Jeff Toth told Outside the Bubble at Webster's Wine Bar. I was able to sit down with Jeff recently to discuss how he came to Second Story and why he chose Second Story to tell this tale. That's where these stories really come from. You know, they, they start to emerge as these little seeds, and then you find what you want to tell, like the story that you want to tell today um, for whatever reason. And you start off kind of big, and then you focus and focus and focus until you have the finished product. And it's just a really fun and cathartic process, too. This story, titled Outside the Bubble, is told by Jeff Toth. I've always been surrounded by this bubble. That's how I see it anyway. Maybe your metaphor is slightly different, and hopefully you don't need a metaphor at all, but for me, depression is this bubble. Some days it's small. So tight it almost feels impossible for me to move. There are other days, though, when the bubble is big. I can move and breathe, but it's still out there, waiting to close back in. No matter what I do, I just can't escape it. But in late 2003, after a string of very close weeks, the bubble released its hold just enough for me to decide to try. I was 24 and in a serious relationship with a young medical student named Jackie. She was the fabled one. The first girlfriend I ever had who was actually good for me in a positive, nourishing way. Not the usual, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger way. You guys know. (laughs) She made me want to be better, but not because she had a list of demands or begged me to be different. Jackie simply inspired by example, and she deserved the best in return. I knew that if I was going to be a part of Jackie's life and our relationship was going to continue to grow, I had to do something to gain control over my immobilizing depression, or time would take its toll, the bubble would close back in, and that would be that. So on a rainy day in late October, I found myself sitting in a new doctor's office during my lunch break. I sat for a while in the waiting room wondering what I was going to say to him. When you're feeling a little desperate and you know that time is of the essence before the bubble closes in, what do you say? These conversations can be tricky. I suppose I'm depressed would have been a good place to start, but that usually led the non-depressed to say the ever unanswerable question, Well, what are you depressed about? Side note. Depression is never about anything. It just is. So please, do your genuinely depressed friends a favor and don't ask that question ever again. Cool? All right. Great. Luckily for me, when the nurse finally called me back, I wasn't drawn down that path. Instead, what followed was quite possibly the shortest and easiest encounter with a personal physician anyone has ever had throughout the whole of recorded history. I gave the new doctor the skinny, careful to delicately navigate the range of my depression, which on any given day could go between I don't want to get out of bed to I pray for death nightly. He nodded, scratched a few notes down on paper, and then 
Without much interrogation beyond the customary family medical history, he opened a cabinet packed with samples of Wellbutrin XL. Filling a plastic grocery bag as full as it would go, he said, try these out, and if they work, I'll write a full prescription. That's it? I mean, how easy was that? Before he slipped out the door, I asked if I should expect any side effects. Well, Butrin's a mild one, he told me. You shouldn't get lightheaded or have any sexual side effects or... Sold. <laughs> Sold. I knew what that was all about. I had taken Paxil once before in my late teens and didn't want to go back down the path with all the zaps and fatigue and all manner of physical dysfunction that needn't ever be spoken aloud ever again. So I took the samples, and within a couple of weeks, it seemed I might actually have my miracle cure. I started feeling motivated and focused, which may not sound like much. It may not even sound all that concrete, but for me, this was an uncharted frontier. I started doing things that I wanted to do, like writing more and playing guitar at open mics and hanging out with friends. I even started doing things that I didn't want to do but had to, like laundry and cleaning my apartment and paying my bills, right? I know, again, it doesn't sound like a very big deal, but those of you out there experienced with depression know how huge that can be. Everything about me felt right on point. So I called the doctor's office, elated to tell him that he was some kind of Jedi genius, that for the first time in my life, I felt normal. This was what real people felt like, wasn't it? I never knew. It was like putting on a pair of glasses for the first time and realizing just how much I couldn't see. Now life was right there in front of me in all its richest hues. I could see. I could see everything except that bubble of mine. The end of the nice part of the story. <laughs> Sounds like you guys knew. Three weeks into my new medical regimen, it starts with a tiny signal to my brain that says something like neck cramp. My head snaps and the tiny cramp signal goes away for an hour or so, but then it happens again and again and again, each interval growing shorter and shorter. Over a week, the hours between each signal drop to minutes and then seconds. The only time I seem to get any relief is when I'm sleeping and I feel cheated that I can't be there to experience the calm. I tick moments after I wake up, in the shower, in my cubicle at work, people start to whisper. They think I'm on drugs. Which I am. <laughs> Just not the ones they think I'm on. I try everything in my power to suppress the ticks, but that makes them worse, a lot worse. The moments I actually can make the head and neck twitching stop, the corners of my mouth flex and pull downward. My eyes won't stop squeezing shut, my wrists won't stop flexing, my feet won't stop tapping, and I can't get my damn throat to stay clear. I forget what it's like to just be static. I get so frustrated and angry that sometimes on my commute home from work, I shred my throat screaming at the top of my lungs and I punch the steering wheel as hard as I can, punishing my body for turning against me. Other drivers on Route 22 pray that the large hairy dude flying into a rage in the Ford Escort wagon doesn't have a gun. To my utter horror, one of these ugly freakouts happens in front of Jackie, my girlfriend, the one. We're going to a cookie decorating party. 
When I park, out, park the car outside of her friend's apartment building, I sit, desperately wishing that a particularly awful wave of these ticks will, will subside. Every muscle in my neck aches, my head throbs, and I am powerless to make it stop. The thought of walking into a room filled with Jackie's fellow medical students, no doubt keen to provide a diagnosis to this great spectacle, is just too much to handle. I scream. I swear. I punch the wheel. My eyes fill with tears as Jackie helplessly, and perhaps a little freaked outedly, watches from the passenger seat. She knows about my struggle with these strange, semi-involuntary spasms, but tends to hold back her medical opinion to preserve our healthy, non-doctor-patient relationship. Finally, she breaks. Have you ever been diagnosed with Tourette's? Tourette's? Isn't that the thing where people stand on the corner and shout, fuck and shit all the time? I'm clueless. That's an incredibly rare form, she explains. Mostly it's marked by motor and vocal tics, kind of like what you're going through right now. No, I tell her. I've never been diagnosed. But different stages of my past spring to mind, and Jackie's theory starts to make sense. Once, when I was five, I would obsessively try to crack my voice by squealing and suddenly dropping to a lower register, kind of like a tiny donkey braying. People told me to knock it off, but I couldn't help it. When I started junior high, I got yelled at because I wouldn't stop sniffling and clearing my throat. I had a history of excessive face touching, clothes adjusting, nose twitching. People just thought I was weird, and I figured that was as good a diagnosis as any. I fill Jackie in on these things. When you're depressed, she explains, those signs tend to fade away too, but on Wellbutrin, they can come back. You really should talk to your doctor. I know, she's right. So later that day, when I drop Jackie off at her place and go home, I get on the internet instead. And after navigating the virtual terror house of cancer diagnoses, I learn that Wellbutrin operates along a part of my brain known as the motivation pathway, stimulating my brain's serotonin centers. That's where my latent Tourette symptoms, those urges to tick, hang out. They hijack the motivation pathway in the Wellbutrin bus, along with all the good bits of motivation. My will to be social and clean, to pay my bills and work on relationships. According to the internet, the thing I'm taking to make me better is turning me into something that looks a lot worse. I reluctantly make an appointment and go back to the doctor's office that week. Within a few flips through his physician's desk reference, Dr. Jedi validates what both Jackie and my online overlords have told me. Huh. What do you know, he says, not realizing that no one ever wants to hear his doctor say, huh. <laughs> he reads on, however, and learns, along with me, that no harm will come to me aside from my altered physical appearance and the occasional muscle cramp. Now I have a choice to make. The medication helps me focus at a new high level, but this gift comes at a heavy price. Without knowing the truth, people already look at me and treat me differently. One mention of the name Tourette's, and I know they'll have the same misinformed perception I had, the nonsensical shouting and swearing. Do I have what it takes to fight that battle? The morning after my doctor visit, I pick up the amber vial of pills and I rattle them around. 
They're so tiny, it's almost impossible for me to comprehend how they cause such relief and pain in equal parts. Each pill represents one day of feeling more alive and functional than I've ever been. At the same time, each pill represents a deep, exposed weakness. A reminder in violent jerks and spasms that, in one way or another, I'll always be broken. I don't take one that morning. I cap the vial and put it back on top of the fridge. I don't take one the next morning either, and on the third day, I've made my final choice. I take them down from the top of the fridge one last time, walk over to the bathroom, and flush them down the toilet. Jackie doesn't show her concern when I tell her that day. As the only person with a backstage view to this whole scene from the start, she understands the decision wasn't an easy one to make. She worries, though, that without some kind of help, depression will creep in, take hold tighter than ever, but she doesn't tell me this until years later, well into our married life together. I don't blame her. I worry too. After a week with no medication, the ticks fade away and my muscles finally relax. The bubble comes back too, but it isn't quite the same because I know that somewhere in this letdown I found the power to choose. Just like when I felt focused and motivated for the first time, at 24, choice is also a new frontier. The bubble contracts, and it still expands, but I never forget what it meant the first time I found a way to move around within it. To understand and accept that not every struggle has an end. This is just life in progress. When did you choose to break free? How did you make the choice to live outside your cage? Have you ever looked at your bubble with acceptance rather than fear? That was first-time storyteller Jeff Toth. This story was curated by Nick Ward with performance direction by Julian Stroop and sound design by Nick Kawahara. Here's Jeff again. Let me lounge back. Um, Yeah, you know, it's a day-to-day thing. Mm -hmm. It's still very much a day-to-day thing. And truth be told, my life has changed tremendously in the the time since I told this story at Second Story. Mm -hmm. I've since become a father, um, which added its whole new thing. And my brain uh, completely went through a reprogramming and is still going through a reprogramming based on that. Um, And in the middle of that, of the early stages of that reprogramming, um, our apartment was set on fire by a serial arsonist. And um, were you okay? But Everybody's okay. Everybody got out fine. Okay. Even our cats got out okay, which is great. Um, the two cats. Great. Yes. One three month old daughter at the time and two cats. And uh, stay tuned, second story listeners, because I'm hopeful that someday all this will come out. You're going through this reprogramming of a mm-hmm. new baby and, and your apartment gets gets burned down. Yeah. Talk to me about where you're at right now with, <laughs> with your your balancing and figuring out how is the reprogramming going? Yeah. Um, it's really hard to say. Okay. Uh, it just because it's, it's for as much as, you know, what I've talked about in the story, for as much as that's like an ongoing kind of thing, 
um, this is still very much ongoing and it's still fairly new. I mean, there are certain quiet moments when, you know, you, you dip and you dive a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but then you see your daughter who's gorgeous and totally unaware and just thinks this is what this whole life thing is. And How you, old is she now? She's five months old now. She will be six months old at the beginning of November. What's her so. name? Her name is Anna. Anna. Yeah. And she's she's perfect. She's wonderful. And I look at her and I love her so much it hurts. She pulls me through it. Like she yeah. helps me focus. There is no time to really go into a serious deep dive when you have that beautiful person that needs to learn about the world from you. Thanks to Jeff Toth for sharing this stunning story of personal strength and helping us all remember that life is a journey of struggles, both small and large. You can always reach me for comment on this or any other Second Story podcast at podcast at secondstory.com. Be sure to follow Second Story on Twitter at Second Story or on Instagram at Second Story Chicago to get behind the scenes of our curation process. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes so more listeners can find and hear this work. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Chicago Community Foundation, part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Work Fund. Second Story podcasts are produced by Eric Hazen, with special thanks to Sherry Pentamone and C.P. Chang. We share our story so you'll share yours. Now go out and knock them down with story power. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story.